Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, July the 15th, 2022. It is currently 1242 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. So I need you to tell me something. What's your favorite type of music? What's your favorite genre of music? What is your favorite style of music? Let me ask another question. What is your favorite kind of movie? Do you like action? Do you like drama? Do you like romance? Do you like mystery? Do you like comedy? What is your favorite kind of movie? What is your favorite kind of book? Movies, music, books. Everyone listening, I in one of those categories, I know you have favorites. You have preferences, but I think you would admit to me, I hopefully you could, that your your likes are, are very subjective in the sense that just because you like it doesn't necessarily make it better because we'd have to have an objective standard in which to judge which is better or which is worse, right? In other words, a lot of it is a very personal, subjective thing. You have your own personal likes, your own personal taste. So it would be very difficult for me to ask you, hey, what makes a song effective? What makes a movie great? What makes a movie good? Oh, you can give me your answers, but it would be once again very personal unless we first determine hey here is the here are is the criteria we are using to judge what is best we would need a criteria and then we would have to agree on that criteria right we'd have to say here's the five things that makes a movie great and then you would have to agree that those five things is what makes a movie great but if those five things leaves out your favorite movie you're going to be like i don't care about those five things because that's my favorite movie that's my favorite kind of music that's my favorite kind of book So when it comes to what makes something effective, what makes something your favorite, what what determines if you like it or dislike it, there's a lot of things that go into that, but it has a lot to do with personal preference, personal likes, and personal dislikes. Now, I know what I'm about to say is going to sound very unspiritual. I know what I'm about to say. Christians all over the planet are going to say, no, that's not true. But I believe when it comes to an effective sermon that most Christians sitting in the pew have a tendency to judge preaching the very same way they judge their favorite music, their favorite movies, and their favorite books. It comes down to personal preference. Oh, I know you're going to say, no, 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 that's not true. That's not true. All I care about is the word of God. In theory, I know that's what we're supposed to care about, but you just look sometimes at who are the most popular preachers, who has the largest churches. And if you look, there's a lot of things you can see about the basic rules, about communication skills, communication techniques, certain things they do, the sound of their voice. There's certain things that just seems to over and over and over again throughout church history. Oh, there's always those anomalies that you're like, wait a minute, how, how, how is that person so popular? There's those anomalies. But on a normal weekly basis, many people choose 
the church they go to, the sermons they listen to, very much on fleshly personal preference. Personal preference. You've probably experienced this, right? You'll have maybe someone preaches a sermon. And you know, like, you know, you know everyone there. Maybe it's a guest speaker at your church. Whatever the case may be, someone preaches a sermon. And you may be sitting there going, this is horrible. This is a train wreck. What is going on? But when it's over, everyone's like, man, that was amazing. That was the greatest thing I've ever heard. That changed my life. And you're just like, wait, what? That Wait, that sermon? That's, that's, that's the sermon that... Did we hear the same sermon? And and you know everyone in the little group that's you know talking about the sermon, giving their thoughts, they would all be professing believers, all be people who care about scripture, but for some reason, some people are like that was amazing. I'll never forget my church in Papillion, Nebraska. They had a guest speaker. I think he was there, uh, I think there, he was there for a couple of services, but he was doing a, a number of sermons. He may was going to do seven. I can't remember how many he actually did, but I just know he did some sermons, uh, on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. All right. And he, he preached those sermons. And when it was, oh, after each sermon, I was just like, what was that? I don't know. I don't really know. I, it just, it just didn't work. I just felt like that. There's something not right here. And it's not that I was trying to be super critical. It was just like, it's not that I really even had anything negative to say. It's just like, I just don't know what, what, what was his point again? Like I was just, I didn't get it, but everyone around was like, those were amazing. I hope we can get a copy of that. I hope there's a cassette available. Like, Oh, that was so good. And I'm just looking around like, wait, you thought those were amazing sermons on the seven churches of revelation. You, you, and I, I did not understand. I was completely not confused by it. There've been other situations where people are like, oh, you've got to hear this sermon. And I'll be like, what? I don't get it. What, what, what makes this sermon so amazing? What makes this sermon so great? I think whether we like it or not, no matter how spiritual we try to claim to be, a lot of what we like when it comes to preaching, teaching, Christian podcast, whatever the case may be, comes down very much to personal very subjective, you know, preferences. It really does. And I, I know we don't want to believe that, but it's just true. I, I, I just think, I, I believe it's true. I, I, you, you can disagree with me. But the reason I'm asking all of these questions, the reason I'm bringing all of this up is about 15 minutes ago, maybe 30 minutes ago, I was looking around and I saw this headline on a Christian website. The bullseye of an effective sermon. Whoa. The bullseye of an effective sermon. And right underneath that, they have a, a dart board with a dart right there in the bullseye. And I'm like, okay, anyone who's ever preached a sermon, anyone who's ever taught a Sunday school lesson, anyone who's ever sat in front of a microphone doing Christian podcasting, come on, tell me, how can I hit the bullseye every single time? What is the bullseye of an effective sermon? What makes it effective? But here's the real question. How do we determine the effectiveness of a sermon? 
Do I determine the effectiveness of a sermon? Do I determine the effectiveness of a podcast episode based on people's reactions? Is it the praise? Is it the, you know, it was great. It was wonderful. Is it the number of emails I receive? Is it the number of thumbs up I get? What determines the effectiveness of a sermon? They're talking about the bullseye of an effective sermon. I think we really have to ask, how do we determine the effectiveness of a sermon? Because I think, I, I, I think once again, there, there's another fleshly element to this. So stay with me here. I think, I think whether we like it or not, what people think are, is great preaching, a wonderful preaching, their favorite preaching, their favorite preacher, their favorite sermons, a lot of that has to do with personal preference, no matter how spiritual we want to try to cover it up. And I think a lot of times when it comes to the preacher trying to determine how effective his sermon was, it once again comes down to very fleshly ways of measuring. Now, when I, when the churches that are in the church that I became a Christian in, they really taught me that the effectiveness of a sermon was how many people came forward for the quote unquote invitation or altar call, right? So you, and so you had to make sure that you found a way to get people to walk that aisle because that determined whether it's Christians coming to supposedly repent or rededicate their life to the Lord or people coming to make a profession of faith. That determined it. That determined it. Well, as I kind of moved away more from that kind of theology, more to maybe a, a reformed perspective, as I kind of started moving away from that, then I was like, okay, so what determines the effectiveness of a sermon? Well, then you're like, people are going, whoa, never, that was amazing, that was awesome, that was great. But over time, <laughs> this is this is the things that can happen to you in ministry. The longer I've been in ministry, the longer I have figured this out. I don't, now, the average person sitting in the pew may not understand this. Preachers may understand this. Sometimes it's the people who come running up going, that was the most amazing sermon. You're the best Bible teacher I've ever heard. That was great. I am so thankful we found this church. There's no church like this. Sometimes the ones that heap the strongest praise on you are the ones to leave the quickest. Sometimes it's the people who've given me the highest praise or the quickest to abandon ship. We're the quickest to say, we're out. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought I was the greatest Bible teacher. I thought I, wh- what happened? Oh, you found someone else who's better. Okay. So, so sometimes I've, I've learned really quick. I, sometimes the stronger the praise, the more, the more likely I'm like, okay, well, they'll be gone in six months. I know that's a jaded way of looking at it. So I've kind of come to a conclusion that that doesn't prove anything. So what really, how do you measure the effectiveness of a sermon? So, How, your favorite preaching and sermons, why is it your favorite? I think there's probably a fleshly, subjective, personal preference element to it, no matter how spiritual we want to make it. And I think pastors trying to determine how effective their preaching is, is also very fleshly and subjective and comes down to to very fleshly measurements. Now, we would like to pretend that we don't need any of that. I know we would like to pretend that I just preach and let God, you know, is going to do what he wants to do, but I'm a human being, all right? I mean, I, I don't know, I mean, people in the pew may not understand this, but when you're spending hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, either in front of a microphone or standing behind a pulpit, working and working and working and preaching and studying and preaching and studying, you do like to hear, I don't know, something positive. You like to get some kind of feedback more than just, that was nice. That was good, Pastor. Thank you. Yeah, you, sometimes you would like a, something a little bit more solid. But then again, 
once you start down that road, does that not become a very fleshly pursuit as well? There's just a lot of issues to this subject. So when I saw the bullseye of an effective sermon, I'm like, okay, which, what are they going to do? Are they going to offer a measurement to determine if a sermon is effective? Or are they just going to give me the criteria in which I am supposed to judge a sermon to determine if it's effective? I don't know where they're going to go with this because I saw the headline. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to run upstairs and we're going to do an impromptu live broadcast. And we're going to talk about this today on the Theology Central podcast. So are you ready? Here we go. This was published today. So this is hot off the presses. Hot off the presses, all right? Hot off the presses, all right? Does that, does that make it more effective? Hot off the presses. The bullseye of an effective sermon. Here we go. Before he died, a friend asked a local pastor to preach at his funeral. Many unbelievers would be present, so we asked him to preach an, e an evangelistic sermon. The pastor read John 3.16, God so loved the world. He described God's love for the lost. Eventually, he encouraged the non-Christians to ask Jesus into their hearts. Now, we could have a theological discussion on that right there. That right there. I think it would be... Uh, we could have, a, I mean, because I, I could ask some questions here that would offend people on both sides of this. I, 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 but I'll just go ahead and at least throw this out there. Do you think a, your, your funeral is the opportune time to try to do evangelism? Or do you think your funeral is designed as a time to allow loved ones, friends, and family to grieve? Now, somebody said, that's not very spiritual. You should always look to evangelize. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I just don't know, is a funeral designed for you to evangelize, try to evangelize lost people who are probably there just because they cared about you, loved you, and they want to they remember you, and they're going through maybe some kind of a grieving process? Do you just want them, hey, the lost people are going to be there. You hit them with the gospel. Is it about the gospel, or is it about, hey, we're here to remember so-and-so who has passed? I'm not saying that there may not be something related to eternal life or heaven, but I just think it's really there to allow people to grieve. I, that's, but I don't know. We could have a discussion here. All right, but so so here's so here's the setup. It's a funeral. Someone's preaching John three sixteen, and he's going to ask lost people to you know turn to Jesus Christ. All right. So what 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 happens? Well, this is what it says. Long before he asked for a decision. So before he gets to a point in the sermon where he asks people to basically decide to follow Jesus. Long before he asked for a decision, though, the crowd was yawning and looking around. Uh-oh. Now, whether the author intends this, since this article is entitled The Bullseye of an Effective Sermon, Immediately, we're seeing how the effectiveness of the sermon is being judged. People are yawning. People are looking around. Therefore, your sermon is not effective. Is that a correct way of looking at the effectiveness of a sermon? Or is that an incorrect way? Is that a fleshly way? You start preaching. You look around. Man, people don't, be, don't seem to be paying attention. People are yawning. Man, I'm not delivering an effective sermon. I've got to change it up. So doesn't that then immediately, that's no longer about the content of the sermon. 
That's no longer about the faithfulness to the text. That becomes about your style and your delivery method. Now, I have a feeling that they're not going to necessarily go that direction, but inadvertently, whether the author intended it or not, that's kind of what he's saying. Hey, this guy wasn't being effective because people were yawning and looking around. So if anyone is yawning and looking around, then your sermon is basically trash. Well, then you start, once you start down that path, then you start going to look for every communication trick under the sun. How do I keep them engaged? What do I do? Do I need to raise my voice more? Do I need to preach less this? Do I need to read? And I, I think it's, a, it's maddening. And if you're not careful, all of this becomes about performance. But let, let's see where they go. Let's see where they go. Long before he asked for a decision, though, the crowd was yawning and looking around. The problem wasn't the preacher's ability. He was an excellent speaker. The problem wasn't the length of the sermon or the text used. Okay, so according to this, the problem wasn't the preacher's ability. Had nothing to do with ability. He was an excellent speaker. The problem wasn't the length of the sermon. The problem wasn't the text. The problem, so was it the length or the text? So what was the problem then? So so what they're determining is in this particular case, people are yawning and looking around. It's not the pastor's ability. It's not the length of the sermon. It's not the text. I guess is that implying that those could be the problem, that you may not be effective because you lack ability. You may not be effective because you preach too long or too short. That you, well, I don't think anyone would complain about too short. That you went too long. That the problem was you chose the wrong text. Can a can the cho- choice of a text make your sermon not effective? You see, this starts getting really questionable. But but let's see what they identify the problem as. The problem was the preacher's goal. Whoa, wait a minute. So now, your sermon may not be effective if you have the wrong goal in mind. Let's see what they have to say here. He didn't aim for his listeners' consciences. So in other words, what you have to do to have an effective sermon, you have to have the right goal. And that goal is that you aim for the conscience of everyone in the pew. You've got to go for their conscience. That's what makes your sermon effective. Okay. I I, I, I want to look, and, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic here. I really want to understand because I would like my sermons to be more effective. I would like my podcast episodes to be more effective. Okay. Everyone has, a, everyone gives me clues on what I'm supposed to do. At some point, you just have to realize, you know what, you're never going to please everyone. So you just have to, I mean, but, but you always try to improve. Let's see what we, what we could do here. This is how they describe it. You ready? The author goes on to say this. Here's how Paul describes the goal of communication. Now, and I'm going to quote from 2 Corinthians 4.2 based on the way that they have it translated here or paraphrased here. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Now, I'm going to read this from a number of translations to see where they're going here. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Because the problem with this sermon that he just described in this example is the pastor did not, well, he didn't follow this rule. He didn't go for their conscience. And, and, and 2 Corinthians 4, 2 is supposedly the, the proof text. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 4, 2 in the King James. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor, or, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience and the sight of God. And what they're focusing on, you've got to commend yourself to the conscience. That's what makes your sermon effective. I'm going to read it from a different translation. Got one right here. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse two. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. So this author really went, he found commending ourselves to their conscience. So like, that's it. That's the key. That's, that's how you know a sermon is effective. So we, we got to figure out something. So you know what we're going to do if you are, if you have the ability. The Blue Letter Bible app, we, I always try to get the listeners involved. Go to the Blue Letter Bible app, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, tap on verse 2 in the Blue Letter Bible app. This opens up the interlinear. And let's go down to conscience. Conscience. The word conscience here comes from this Greek word. Strong's G 4893. Sunidesis. 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 What a, what a, what a word. Sunidesis, if I can say it correctly. All right, it's used 32 times. 32 times it's translated conscience, all right? Uh, Strong's definition, sunatis, uh means moral consciousness, conscience. The consciousness of anything. The soul is distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and shun the latter, commending one, condemning the other, the conscience. So there seems to be no issue that this is definitely a reference to commending ourselves to the conscience that there seems to be no question. All right. So this is a good verse to use. There's no major issue about how to translate it or understand it. Let's see what they mean by the, because where they're going here, if you want an effective sermon, you've got to commend it. You've got to commend yourself to their conscience. You've got to preach directly to the conscience. Let's see what they say here. Preaching to the conscience means something concrete. It means explaining the listener's obligation to God, their failure to meet those obligations, their impotence to make up for that failure, the, inter- the eternal consequences of that failure, and God's astounding grace offered to all who will humble themselves, repent, and believe the good news. In other words, preaching to the conscience is pro- pro- provocative 
It seeks to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. So it appears that what they are saying, or at least they're claiming, is that the bullseye to an effective sermon is you've got to preach directly to the conscience and you have to do the following things in your sermon. Number one, you've got to explain the listener's obligation to God. Listen, everyone, here is your obligation to God. Here's what God calls you to do. Number two, you have all failed to meet that obligation. So number one, you've got to give them their obligation to God. Number two, you've got to explain they have failed in that obligation. Number three, you have to explain to them the impotence to make up for that failure. You cannot make up for this failure. You cannot fix it. Number four, the eternal consequences of that failure. Because you can't meet, you know, you can't fix this failure, there's eternal consequences, which is separation from God for all eternity. But... God's astounding grace is offered to all who will humble themselves, repent, and believe the good news. Then you show them what God has done. So you basically, to summarize, you give them God's obligations. You tell them their failure, their inability to make to make up to make it up or to to meet it. There's going to be eternal consequences, but they can look to God, and God will save them from their failure. That, that, that I'm, I'm trying to summarize it. Now, they're claiming that that is what makes a sermon effective. And a lot of people would agree with that. A lot of pastors would agree with that. Now, I have a very different perspective on all of this. First of all, I think so much of this is, I think this all sounds super spiritual, but I still think no matter, you can meet all, I, trust me, you can, you could meet every one, you could do every one of those things they just listed. You could check that list off. Every week you do these same things every week you, you and you'll still have people yawning, looking around and quote unquote, it's not effective. So I don't believe that there's some magic bullet out there. I, I really other than I believe you can follow man-made communication uh, skill techniques and communication techniques and how you there's things you can do to be a much more effective communicator. They, these are the same tactics and techniques used in any college where they teach you. Uh, if you have ever taken a speech class, you learn these basic concepts. So you can, you can, you can do that. But once again, it becomes a very fleshly endeavor, right? People show up, you use every communication technique and trick in the book. And so therefore you keep their attention. They're like, amen, that was great. And then everyone walks away thinking the sermon was effective. This is at least arguing that no, the way that for the sermon to truly be effective, you have to preach this certain way. You got to go to, first your goal is the conscience and then here, must be the elements of your message. The element of your message must be you've got to explain the listener's obligation to God, their failure to meet those obligations, their impotence to make up for that failure, the eternal consequences of that failure, and God's astounding grace offered to those who repent and believe. In other words, preaching to the conscience is provocative. It seeks to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. That's what makes a sermon great. This seems to be, here's your checklist. I did all of those things. Therefore, my sermon was effective. I have a different philosophy. My philosophy is, what was the text for your sermon? Let's look at that text. All right. 
Now, let me listen to your sermon. How well did you handle that text? Did you truly explain that text? Did you truly answer all the difficulties with that text? Did you truly dig into that text? Or was that text simply a pretext for you to give a speech where you used all of these wonderful communication skills and so people laughed or they cried or they were interested or they were they were filled with suspense and sitting on the edge of their seat hanging on your ever word ever every word? Or did they actually learn something about the text? Way too many times. I've heard people tell me how great a sermon was, right? And when they start telling me the great parts of a sermon, oh, they said this, and they gave me this, and they gave me this. And so then I'll say, what was the, what was the sermon on? Oh, okay. What was the text? Okay. So, and I start asking some basic questions about the text, right? I'll just grab my Bible and go, okay, so you, you were in, you know, you were in Deuteronomy. Okay, so, right, so... Who, what, where, when? I started ask, asking the basic questions and they, they won't be able to answer. I'm like, then that, what? to me, that's not an effective sermon. I, 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 I'm not, I, I go against so much of, of what uh, you're told to do in preaching, right? No, my thing is, what's the text? My job is to explain the text as faithfully as I can, not hiding or covering up the difficulties a text may provide. We deal with the difficulties, the questions, the problems. Our job, it's, it's to me, the way preaching is, is all right, guys, here's our, like, I kind of see everyone in the congregation that we're in, in it together. They're not there sitting to listen, though we're all together. All right, everybody ready? We got our Bible. We got our notebooks. We're ready to go. We're going to dig in for the next hour. So let's figure this out and that we're working together to dig into the text, and then when it's all said and done, we can either say, we don't have any answers, or we do have answers. And I know that that goes against almost everything that you're taught about preaching, but this is just like, here's your checklist. I would argue you could get two pastors with two drastically preaching, different preaching styles and different personalities. Both of them could could literally preach the exact same sermon, meeting all of this criteria. And some people would walk away going, that was amazing. And some people would go, that was garbage. And the difference would be far more on the preacher's style, personality, deliverance, and the sound of his voice than would have anything to do with the actual content. And I Christians are going to be like, no, that's so fleshly. It's reality. You say, well, what should we do? I think preachers have to just not cave in to trying to figure out what they have to do. I think you just have to focus on being faithful to the text personally, or you're just, you're just chasing the game forever. You're just chasing, trying to, to become more effective. And which means doing what you can to please people. This is what they go on to say. Every preacher who pursues this goal will assume two critical truths. So it's like anyone who pursues this goal, the goal is to preach to the conscience. He says, that's the goal. Anyone who pursues that goal, you must have two there. You must assume two crucial truths. Number one, God has inscribed his law on every heart. As Paul observes, unbelievers show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their, conf- and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Romans 2.15. The preacher assumes he can revive his listener's conscience by spirit empire- empowered conscience focused preaching. 
So your first thing you must assume is that the law is written on every heart. And then the the, the way this is written, you could really have a number of assumptions. So really it would be the first assumption, the law of God is written on every heart. The second assumption is that the preacher believes you can revive the listener, their conscience by spirit empowered, conscience conscious focused preaching. What they say, the second assumption is, he assumes he shouldn't provoke his listener's conscience without bathing them in hope. This is the problem with some forms of hellfire and damnation preaching. It can lack the appropriate hope that comes through awareness of God's gospel solution. Hope can turn the possibility of condemnation into life-giving conviction, evidence of a sensitized conscience. So they're like, one thing you have to do is you have to realize uh, you have to assume that you should never provoke the listener's conscience without bathing it in hope. Once you offer the conviction, you've got to offer them the hope, or it no longer becomes an effective sermon. They go on to say Paul's example. The Apostle Paul took his own advice when preaching when he preached at the uh, uh, when he preached in Athens. Instead of starting with God's love, he aimed his argument at his listener's conscience. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commanded all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 30 through 31. Notice that he first explains their duty. God commands to repent. Then he aims to, for their conscience. There will be an accounting. For God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Or consider Paul's approach in his letter to the Romans. After briefly announcing the good news, Romans 1, 16 through 17, he spends considerable time targeting the conscience, Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. Only after thoroughly exposing his readers' obligations to God's law and their inability to keep it, thereby stimulating their conscience, does he return to the theme of gospel hope, chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. Remarkably, three chapters record nearly 1,300 words aimed at the hearer's conscience and about 80 describing the gospel solution. A few years later, Paul courageously preaches to the conscience of the governor Felix, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, see, a few years later, Paul courageously preaches to the conscience of governor Felix. John the Baptist, Matthew 3, Peter, Acts 2, and Jesus, Matthew 5 through 7, did the same. So in other words, we're like, we've got to preach to the conscience. You've got to preach to the conscience. So every sermon is, here's your obligation. You failed. You can't do it. Christ did. That's supposed to be the focus of every sermon. And I disagree. I think the focus of every sermon is the text, which I preach. That determines my focus. And And I don't believe that I take a pre... a. I don't believe I take a list of bullet points to every text. Say, I I reject this. Here's the text. I've got to preach this. I've got to preach, even whether it's a Lutheran perspective or whatever the perspective, I've got to preach Christ or I've got to preach law. I've got to preach gospel. No, I'm going to preach what the text tells me to preach. The text determines the sermon. I don't take my, here's my five points cram them into the verse. No, I preach the verse or verses. That's what I teach. 
I don't like this idea. Well, no, no, your, your, your sermon, it didn't have law or gospel. It didn't tell people their obligations. It didn't tell people that they failed to meet their obligations. It didn't tell them that there's eternal consequence. It didn't tell them these things. Therefore, you didn't preach an effective sermon. No. You're determining effectiveness by me meeting your checklist. I believe the effectiveness of a sermon is how faithful I was to the text. I don't think I have to come in with every text. I got to balance it out. I got to, no, I just, what's, here's our text today. Here's where we are. Here's what we're going to study. Even, and this doesn't even mean, and, and someone who's exegetical or verse by verse, I'm just saying whatever text you're bringing to the pulpit, that's what you have to deal with. You've got to provide some context, historical background, and then you got to take the text apart and say, what can we learn today from this? But if all you're doing is looking at a text so that you can just preach your five points, how many points? Let me go back to how many points he gave for every sermon must have. Let me go through here. See, number one, uh, the listener's obligation to God. Number two, their failure. Number three, their impotence to make up for it. Four, their eternal consequences. And five, God's grace. So according to this, a sermon is effective only if you, if you preach those five points. To me, I'm, the text isn't even really important. The text is secondary. The text is simply a tool for me to preach these five points. And when the text simply becomes a tool for you to preach what you've already determined, then you're not actually teaching the word of God. You're not actually preaching the word of God. You're using the word of God to preach your preconceived ideas that you are now are going to impose on every text because every sermon, you must do these five things. I strongly go, I, I, I strongly disagree with, 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 with this whole, whole concept. They go on to say this. The great obstacle to this kind of preaching is the fear of man. When the conscience is awakened, people react. The humble repent, rejoice, and enter God's kingdom. The proud become angry. Who are you to tell me I'm a sinner? Or this is not the God I learned about in Sunday school. Men dominated by the fear will not preach to the conscience. If you're seeking a reward from men, you preach the God uh, as you preach the gospel. You may get it, but that's all. You won't get anything from God. That uh, everyone, every book on preaching always says that this is the way you're to preach. And if you don't preach this way, it's because you're scared. I, I, I can't stand that. I can't stand that. You preach according you. This is the way you preach. And if you don't do it, it's because you're scared. Everyone tells you how to preach. And then everyone tells you if you don't preach the way they tell you to preach, it's because you're scared or they make some accusation. You preach our way or you're doing it the wrong way. I could turn around and say, if you preach this way, who cares about the fear of man? What you care, what you're demonstrating to me is you don't love the actual scripture. Oh, can, can I just make the same accusation? Just, can I just, can I make my own accusations? You tell me I don't preach your way because I'm scared of people. I will tell you, you don't preach my way because you don't love the word of God. Because if you love the word of God, you would know this is more important then your little five preconceived ideas that I must impose on every text. They go on to say, the world needs pastors who fear God. I agree. Love sinners. I agree. And understand the need to preach to conscience. This will only happen to the degree that God's spirit liberates God's leaders from the fear of man as he humbles them with a deep sense of their own need. 
May God give us this kind of striking humility coupled with bold passion to preach to conscience for the glory of God. Please, no, none of that is about the text. He, he doesn't even talk about faithfulness to the text, explaining the text. My understanding is that the church's job is to equip saints so they're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That's the primary purpose of the pulpit in every church is to equip saints. How are saints equipped? Through the preaching of God's word. How is the church, in a sense, cleansed or bathed through the preaching of God's word? How do they grow spiritually? Through the preaching of God's word. It is the word of God that is inspired, that is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. It is the word of God. When I come into the pulpit, I shouldn't have to follow some like, here's what makes a sermon effective. What I think the only way to do this is for you to say, What's the text? I'm just going to grab over here. This is the feature, a daily Bible study guide. Today is July the 15th. So I'm going to go July 15th. John chapter 7, verses 25 to 31. John 7, 25 to 31. An effect, to me, an effect, effective sermon is that person takes John 7, 25 to 31 and 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 it, in an accurate way accurately demonstrates what the text means in its historical context how it is applicable today without doing damage to the original context what words mean and if there are major textual and and interpretive problems with the text that to me is an effective sermon he would say nope the way you know your sermon was effective on John 7, 25 to 31, is you follow his five-point plan. Right? For him, you preach John 7, 25 through 31, your sermon better include this. Number one, explaining to the listeners their obligation. Number two, their failure to meet that obligation. Number three, their impotence to make up for that failure. Number four, the eternal consequences. And number five, God's grace. According to this, that's what makes a sermon effective. I disagree. I'm putting forth a different perspective today. What I want to hear is I want to know John 7, 25. I'm just because I picked this up, I'm just going to open it up my Bible really quick. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Let's see if I can just figure out what's going on here. Right quick, John chapter 7, verse 25 to 31. This is John 7. I'll make sure I'm looking at the right passage. I know technically for this illustration, I can do whatever I want. John 7, 25 through 31. All right, here we go. Then said some, uh, uh, let me, if I can read this correctly. John 7, verse 25. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they said nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught them, Ye both know me, and you know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye 
know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? So we have a division among the people. We have confusion trying to figure out who this is. We have Jesus declaring who he is. And then we have some belief that we would have to figure out exactly what's going on here. There's, there's some things we have to go on here. I'm not going to come and impose a checklist. I'm going to go, okay, I need some context here. So what's, what's going on, right? Then said some of them of Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill? So there's some confusion here. Wait a minute. Is this not the guy they're, they're, that those in Jerusalem are trying to kill? All right. So what's happening? Why are some in Jerusalem trying to kill? I need some of that context, right? Then they said, but lo, he speaketh boldly and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? So some are like, wait a minute. Do they know that this is the Christ, the Messiah? So in other words, I could walk through this and try to understand. Where are some of the difficulties in understanding the passage? I don't come along and impose just some like, nope, if it's going to be effective, it's got to have this. I, I, I witnessed that too much in preaching class. Oh, your sermon didn't do this or this or this or this. And who's, and I, my argument always, did the text call for that? Was that in the text? Show me where I missed the, that in the text. You want me to impose that on the text. I'm not going to impose your arbitrary rules on a text. I'm going to look at the text and what's in the text is what I'm going to accurately put forth as carefully as I can. That to me is what makes it effective. But let's, let's, we have to end with this. Someone can accurately preach what's in the text, get everything right, every explanation right, every interpretation right, every application right. But you know what will happen? There'll be some people who don't like it because they don't like the style. They don't like the speaker's voice. They don't like the presentation. They don't like that kind of teaching. I, I know you're going to, I know a lot of people are going to be shocked by this. A lot of people, when they hear the kind of teaching, like the way I do, I try to break it down and take it apart. I, I, I've had the complaint my whole ministry. It feels like I'm in seminary. It feels like I'm in university. That's not preaching. I don't want that. So they go to a church that does it completely different. That's perfectly okay. So I, what I want you to see is whatever rule you impose on and what you determine is an effective sermon, you're still going to have the same problem. People are not either going to like the style or not like the style. They're going to like the speaker or not like the speaker. They're going to like the way he preaches or they're not going to like the way he preaches. So much of what determines good preaching is more personal preference than it has anything to do with the actual handling of God's word. No matter how spiritual, we, we don't want to admit that. The whole process is as fleshly as fleshly can be, and we can pretend all day that it is not. But it is. Just as people are like, oh, I didn't like that movie. What? I love that movie. Hey, I hate that sermon. What? That sermon was amazing. So here is the real question. Honestly. Honestly. What's your criteria for what you believe is an effective sermon or a good sermon? I need you to be honest. 
Come on. If you listen to lots of sermons, you, you'll start determining a, a, probably a pattern or a style that is more to your, there's going to be certain things that drive you crazy. And there's going to be certain things that you like. You probably need to determine what it is. And then you have to ask yourself, is it possible that you're looking at this in the most fleshly way possible? And as a result, you could be missing out on maybe some good preaching and good teaching. And this article, they just come up with, this is what makes a sermon effective, just indiscriminately. This is what makes it effective because supposedly they can find some examples of the New Testament where this supposedly occurs. And then they, then they make those passages where there's examples of this supposedly kind of preaching and they make that prescriptive on everyone else's preaching. And I don't think that that's, I don't, none, those passages don't say this is the way you will preach. So there's already a problem. Then they come up with a list of five things and like, you must do this or your sermon is not effective. To me, that is imposing things on the text. So I guess the real question is, not is what is your favorite kind of preaching? I think here's the real question. What do you really want out of a sermon? What do you really want? And is it possible that your want is not the biblical want? What if everyone wants the wrong thing in sermons and pastors are busy trying to deliver the wrong thing to the people? Then the entire process is broken, ineffectual, and you end up with messed up Christianity. I'd love to get your thoughts. Email them to me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. If you would like to see the article that I was reading, and it's called The Bullseye of an Effective Sermon by William P. Farley. It was published today, and you can find it at thegospelcoalition.org. I know I say the Gospel Coalitions, people, liberals and whatever. I don't get caught up in all the yelling and screaming everyone does on the internet. I think it's an interest, It's an article that presents a point of view that obviously I disagree with, but I want you to read it and see if you agree or disagree with their – you may disagree with me. That's perfectly okay. Ultimately, you know what you're going to do? You're going to choose the pre preaching you like no matter what, any, what anyone tells you about preaching. That's what you're going to do because there's so much of what we do in the church that's nothing more than fleshly – it's just fleshly activity no matter how spiritual we try to describe it or how spirit – all the robes of righteousness we try to cover it up in – there's still a very much an earthly, fleshly uh, element to it. And we have to learn to see that and be honest with it. But it's called The Bullseye of an Effective Sermon by William P. Farley. It's on the gospelcoalition.org. I think you'll see it right when you go to the main site. And it was published today. If you need help finding the article, if you would like to read it for yourself, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Think about it. Because it's Friday, so before you know it, you'll be sitting in a pew or stadium seating, whatever kind of church you go to, chairs, whatever, and you're going to be hearing someone preach. Really think about the whole process and everything that's happening. Are we really accomplishing anything 
or is it just another fleshly endeavor disguised as a spiritual activity? That's something to think about. God bless.